Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Why hasn't the United States elected a woman president? It came close in 2016 and elected the first female vice president in 2020. But when will this nation hand the reins of power over completely to a woman? Ali Vitale covered both the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections for NBC News. And in her new book, she dives into the campaigns to determine why the United States hasn't yet reached this milestone. She joins today to share what she learned. That's next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. To Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and as always, thanks for tuning in. You know, when we're putting shows together here on Detroit today, we're always trying to think of ways to be the most inclusive we possibly can. We want people participating across a broad spectrum of interests and backgrounds and demographics and geography. We want people calling the show to tell us what they think about the subjects that we're talking about. And there's a running conversation among the producers and me on this show about how to get more women calling and involved when we talk about politics. If we have a candidate on, if we pick a subject that is about a piece of legislation that's being debated in Congress or in Lansing, inevitably, the voices that pipe up the most frequently and the loudest are male. We don't know specifically why that's true, and we work really hard at trying to come up with subjects that we think will engage everybody, but there's no question that there's a big difference. And if you think about it, that's reflective of our politics themselves. They are dominated by men, both historically and into the future. Men designed the system of government here in the United States without including women in those conversations or even in the participation in that government and politics for many, many years. And although women now, of course, have the right to vote and participate in politics at much higher rates than they did even just a few decades ago, our politics are still far from a state of gender parity. Women make up just 27% of the House of Representatives, for example, and only 24% of the U.S. Senate. And while we've had women run for president several times and in increasing numbers, and we've come close to electing a woman to be president, our politics are still so male-dominated that no woman has ever been able to get over all the hurdles that stand between them and the Oval Office. And let's think about some of the reasons that may be true. The double standards alone in our politics 
seem endless. As a woman politician, you're not allowed to be angry. You're not allowed to cry. You're not allowed to show a range of emotion that men in similar spaces are almost never criticized for displaying. On the flip side, male politicians don't get called out for what they wear. They're not expected to stay quiet and listen first. Men are less likely to be told that they have, quote, electability issues when they decide to run for president. This is ubiquitous, from local races all the way up to national races. And that has everything to do with outcomes. It has everything to do, especially with the fact that we have not gotten to the point of electing and placing a woman into the Oval Office at the highest height of our politics. Ali Vitale is a Capitol Hill correspondent for NBC News who has been thinking a lot about these issues. She covered the presidential campaigns in 2016 and in 2020, and she recently wrote a book called Electable, Why America Hasn't Put a Woman in the White House Yet. We're really pleased to welcome Ali Vitale to Detroit today to talk about her experience covering campaigns and all of the other things that uh, reflect this issue in Washington, and to talk about her new book. Ali Vitale, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. What a fantastic introduction. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic topic, and it's one of the things that I think uh, we are just on the precipice of not being able to have this kind of conversation anymore. I really believe that we are closer than we ever have been in our history to electing a woman president. But but I, I want to start with you telling me why, in, in your judgment, this hasn't happened yet. Yeah, look, Stephen, I mean, I would love to eventually stop writing electable and write elected. And I do <laughs> think that we are close in terms of the fact that when you look at both parties, we are finally in a place where they have elevated enough women within their political pipelines, within their ranks of candidates who are sitting on the bench waiting to tap in, whether it's to run at the congressional level, at the statewide level, but certainly for the presidency, we now have enough women waiting in the wings that I highly doubt that we're going to have too many election cycles going forward where there's not at least one woman running. And I think 2020 for us was another sign of progress where even though Hillary Clinton lost in 2016, you then had in 2020 more women running in one campaign cycle than we've ever seen before. And so for me, as someone who not just covers politics, but thinks about it also through a gender lens, it was a real opportunity. And the reason for this book's exploration was explaining why in seeing so many women run, they all still fell short. And I'm a political reporter first. There are plenty of political reasons that I write about in the book as to why these women ended up not being the Democratic nominee. But there's also something to be said that in 2020, the nominee was someone who looked like almost every other person who we had seen nominated before, which is to say a an older white man in Joe Biden. And I joke in the book that the short answer for why we haven't had a female president yet is misogyny. But the longer answer is that when you consider if you were to put every ingredient in a bowl and mix it up, it's hard to quantify the role 
role that genderism and sexism and double standards can play. And mm. so sometimes we might gloss over it, but it is the thing that explains why the cake comes out as it does. And I think in each of the instances that I explore in the book, I take us through moments that we all just experienced during the 2020 campaign, but even before that in 2016 and all the way back to 1984 and 1972, even when Shirley Chisholm was the first black woman to run for president. I take us through all these moments and I really lean into the explanation of the role of gender. And I hope that it allows voters and people who are reading it to see how gender manifested in a negative way oftentimes for these female candidates so that next time around, they'll at least check their biases and wonder, okay, why am I feeling a certain way? And is it because this disrupts a certain gender stereotype that I've felt in the past? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I want to, before we dive into the two elections that you covered uh, a little more uh, deeply, I want to mm-hmm. talk a little about the difference between race and gender uh, yeah. as it pertains to the presidency in, in particular, but but also as as they play out in not just our politics, but our our culture. Uh, of course, we talk a lot on this show about race and inequality, uh, mm-hmm. the lingering effects of, of institutional uh, inequality in particular. Um, uh, we also talk about gender, but it seems to me that... that they have lots of things in common, right, um, in terms of the reasons that we don't reach certain milestones uh, with regard to equality in either in either way. But here uh, we have had an African-American president yeah. that Barack Obama gets elected in, in 2008, and we have not had uh, a woman. So, so let's draw some distinctions and talk about why we have been more successful at leveling that playing field, that one playing field, at least uh, on a racial uh, uh, on a racial playing field. But we haven't been able to do it when it comes to gender. I actually asked Secretary Hillary Clinton about this because, of course, you don't get to 2016 without talking about 2008 and yes. the way that she ran and the cycle within which she ran. And the way that she remembers it is really the way that all of us remember it, which is that Democratic voters had the opportunity in 2008 to make history in one of two ways. They could have elected the first black man to be their party nominee and ultimately president, or they could have elected the first woman to be their first party nominee and ultimately president. And we know that they opted for Barack Obama in that instance. And I think what it shows us is that there are different stereotypes that you have to disrupt and narratives that you have to disrupt if you are a candidate of color or a woman, simply because, and you laid this out so perfectly in your introduction, this is a system that was built by white men for white men to uphold power for white men (laughs) continuously. And so anyone who does not fit that mold is putting a crack in the ceiling of what this country was designed as versus what it should be, which is more reflective in its governance, because that way, the more diversity of perspective and lived experience, policy can touch people in a more intuitive fashion. You end up, at least hopefully and ideally, disrupting some of the systemic inequalities that have been baked into this system for so long. That requires intentionality, but at the same time, that's the entire premise of why we should have governments that look like all of Americans, all of the parts of the voting coalition in this country. And so the lesson out of 2008 is the simple one that you eventually will learn when we elect a woman, which is that these candidates have never been in these spaces before, but that doesn't mean that they can't be. 
it disrupts the imagination barrier. And certainly that's something that Barack Obama had to fight against when he was running, asking voters to imagine someone who had never been a black person in the Oval Office before. He was able to do that. And by doing so, proved that that imagination barrier no longer existed. Women now face the same challenge, which is they don't just ask when they're candidates, voters to imagine someone with their policy profile, with their personality profile in the Oval Office. They're asking voters to imagine something that they've never seen before. But once it happens, the imagination barrier is gone. And that's something that women have have still to face. But that in the one instance of Barack Obama, we've at least proven to the country, okay, this can happen. Representation does really matter in that regard. Yeah. I'm talking with Ali Vitali. She is a Capitol Hill correspondent for NBC News. She covered the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections. Uh, she recently wrote a book called Electable, Why America Hasn't Put a Woman in the White House Yet. Uh, we're talking about that book. We're also talking about uh, the gender inequality that uh, that plagues our politics still, that uh, sometimes uh, gives way to progress in terms of uh, women being elected to, to, to posts that they were uh, for many, many years not able to win or not even allowed to run for in some cases. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Uh, why do you think we have not been able to elect a woman president? Uh, do you have uh, doubts about our ability to overcome centuries of inequality in order to do that. Also, give us a call and let us know if you're a woman who is active in politics now. Uh, are you somebody who's holding elected office or seeking elected office? Are you someone who's organizing people uh, around campaigns and uh, elections? Uh, do you have doubts about uh, the way in which you are respected uh, as an equal member of uh, the conversations about those things. Uh, has politics changed for you over time, seemed to be more equal uh, as we get further and further into the 21st century? Uh, also, give us a sense of what impediments still stand in front of you. What kinds of things do you still feel like you have to overcome unfairly? Uh, because you are a woman. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation uh, that way. Before we get to our listeners, uh, Ali, I want to talk about uh, the first presidential uh, campaign that you cover, and that's in 2016. Uh, yeah. Now, there are a lot of people, and I'm one of them, who say, well, look, Hillary Clinton did win that election, <laughs> and, and uh, by the numbers, uh, she, she yeah. got the most votes. Uh, now, the, the, the rules of, of our system uh, say that you've also got to win the, the Electoral College, and she didn't do that. But, but why do you think Hillary Clinton was unable, after such a massive lead that she had, uh, to, to, to pull that election out? I know that sexism is the is the kind of easy answer here, but there are some deeper things going on too. There's definitely some deeper things going on. And certainly when I talk to her, she lays out that gender was definitely at play here. But she also says that in her explanation of why she didn't win the presidency, it was Russia, it was Comey, it was WikiLeaks, it was Trump, right? And Trump as a as a topic here is just such a complicating factor in this because while you had Hillary Clinton leaning into 
her gender and her historic potential in a way that she had never done before on the national stage, because it's certainly not the way that she ran in 2008. But what you had in 2016 was this binary between a woman who was arguably the most, if not one of the most qualified people in terms of resume to run for this office, going against a man who was a consummate outsider, but who lacked any traditional qualification in the political sphere, other than the fact that he had donated in bipartisan fashion across the board for many years as someone who wanted to see it reflected in the policy effectively. And Trump often talked about himself as someone who knew how to pull the levers of government from a very unofficial perspective in terms of just, you know, schmoozing with politicians and being on the New York social scene. And so you had that juxtaposition between qualification, qualifications, certainly, but then also in persona, the way that Trump presented, and I was on the campaign trail with him, hundreds and hundreds of rallies over the course of 2015 and 2016, when I was traveling with that campaign, and you watched him campaign in the most hyper-masculine fashion possible. And when you talked in your introduction about men being able to leverage certain emotions that women are not allowed to leverage, mm -hmm. certainly anger was one of the key ones that Trump often not just stoked and continues to stoke in his supporters, but certainly consistently showed on the campaign trail. It was regularly a listing of grievances when he would get up and do his stump speeches. And it was an emotion that worked for him. And I think it is a reminder that men can campaign in that hyper-masculine fashion and still be seen as all the things that we associate with a president, which is strong and powerful and an executive. But when women level, level those emotions, it is not roundly received in positive fashion. And thankfully, there are conversations around changing that, around disrupting that narrative of women are allowed to, in the same way that men are, allowed to be angry, they are allowed to be sad, they're allowed to have a whole range of emotions, but it's the accepting of those emotions and the way that they manifest in the minds of the people who are receiving them that still has some distance to go. I mean, the thing that I think about too, if you fast forward to 2020, when Joe Biden was running on the campaign trail, he had several moments where he got angry with voters. In Iowa, I remember he challenged a guy to a push-up contest because he didn't <laughs> like the question that he asked. And typically, in my experience, don't yell at the voters is one of the key rules. <laughs> but people came out of that moment, some of them criticized him, but then others said that moments like that and moments that followed where he really got into it with voters actually showed passion and strength and, and courage of conviction. And it's hard to imagine that a woman yelling at a voter would have been received in the same way. Yeah. So so Hillary Clinton in particular, I think, draws a certain kind of ire and yeah. um, uh, just disapproval from from people. And in fact, on our Twitter feed, Anthony uh, says uh, because Hillary Clinton is deplorable. That's his answer to, to why we haven't uh, elected a woman to, to the presidency yet. And, and again, she has that, that visceral kind of yes. uh, uh, response from, from lots of, of people. But, but there again, how much of that is about gender? I mean, if Hillary Clinton were a man and had done the things that she had done, um, would people think of her in in the same way? I think that's that's the reflexive question you yeah. have. Um, I also find it a little bit ironic that uh, that she was you know the wife of 
a, a president who who betrayed their marriage while he was uh, in office in a really public way and and you know stuck in the marriage and did all of these things to try to make it work and was then kind of painted as as uh, someone just hungry for power and who, yeah. who didn't have uh, enough self-respect I think some people would say to have to have left Bill Clinton uh, it's almost like there's nothing she can do right uh, you you play the role of traditional loyal wife and people hate you for that uh, you do yeah. other things that seem more aggressive and masculine and people uh, people hate you for that too and look it's a very specific Hillary Clinton problem that you detail just now and I think I heard this from voters especially women when I would follow Trump would say they would never consider voting for Hillary because they felt that if she couldn't take care of her husband, then she couldn't take care of the country. Now, what male parallel exists where you could say that? And again, Hillary Clinton is such a specific example because she's the wife of a former president. I mean, you're now getting into like the the 10th percent of the 10th percent, right? This is such rare air. And mm-hmm. so she's such a specific case. But I do think that what we learn about Hillary Clinton is also indicative of everybody else that comes after her, which is that Hillary allowed voters, I think, in 2016 to make it specific to her as to why women didn't win the presidency that cycle, despite the fact, again, that she won the popular vote, even though that's not the metric that we use to elect presidents. But I think that we use the the vitriol associated with Hillary Clinton to almost absolve the fact that we're still a very gendered society, because then again, you flash forward four years and you have six different women who ran and multiple Democratic operatives who I spoke to said that they thought that now with America getting to see all of these different ways that you could run while female, none of these people were Hillary Clinton. And yet all of them, A, were still compared to her because we lack the imagination of seeing more women run in the presidential space. Thankfully, that will be solved at least a little bit better because we now have 2020 in the rear view. But also all of them still lost and all of them still had moments where when they were being aggressive, when they were being themselves, when they were trying to show authenticity, when they were trying to show their qualifications, key debate stage moments that I point to for Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren, even when they were winning, doing the job of presidential candidates and doing them well, there were still people who saw drawbacks in their success. So even when they were winning, they were still sort of losing too. And I think that was, you know, that's what I see in Hillary Clinton is that she was this paradigm that people can say, oh, well, she was so vitriolic that she's she's incomparable. It was a she was the worst woman we could have put up and also the best woman we could have put up. But that's not true. Like Hillary Clinton is just one example of a larger trend. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with uh, Ali Vitali about her book, Electable. Also get to you on social media and on the phones. Bernadette in Old Redford, Elisa in Gross Point Park, Terry in Detroit, and Dan in Southfield. You'll be up first. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with little with a lot more of uh, Detroit Today.
WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Ali Vitale. She's a Capitol Hill correspondent for NBC News and author of a book called Electable, Why America Hasn't Put a Woman in the White House Yet. Uh, We're talking about that milestone, when we might reach that milestone in this country uh, after such a long journey away from its founding, which, of course, excluded women, among many other people, from even eligibility uh, to hold office. Um, We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you think stands in the way of a woman being elected to serve as president of the United States? Uh, What do you think it will take to get over all of those hurdles. We especially want to hear from women who are working in politics. Uh, are you holding elected office? Are you organizing around campaigns or issues? Uh, talk about the hurdles that you still encounter uh, because you're a woman, the things that uh, still aren't equal uh, in terms of the way that uh, you're received or respected. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can work you into the conversation. Let's start today with Elisa in Gross Point Park. Elisa, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to make a point here that I think is very easily lost in the conversation about like, oh, well, we've had, you know, a black president and we've still never had a woman elected president. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's really, really easy to um, sort of look at those things and say like, oh, okay, well, we're in like this, uh," you know, I think a lot of people will say like, oh, well, then these two things are like different problems and we've made all this great racial progress. And, you know, here's women still, you know, consigned to, uh, you know, second-tier status of, of citizenship. And I think that that's just really, really um, pernicious to put forth the idea that having had a black president elected puts us in some kind of, like, plus-one column <laughs> in, like, the, the, like, you know, social justice Olympics or whatever, and then, <laughs> then like, women still are lagging behind because, um, you know, the presidency is obviously a hugely important and symbolic position, but it's also not a thing that I think most people feel in their day-to-day material lives. Mm. And so I think that um, trying to look at anything, really, but especially politics, from the lens of race or the lens of gender, but not together, um, is just a really tricky and dangerous thing to do because I do think that like a lot of, I mean, like the, the, the white parents and get out, you know, the, mm-hmm. we would have voted for Barack Obama a third time. <laughs> like that's, I think that's like a real phenomenon yeah, yeah. that is definitely, definitely it's, not, um, 
anywhere gone. So, Elisa, I think that's a really interesting point. But but I I want to ask you what you think are better measures. I mean I I don't disagree that uh, the presidency is probably a poor overall measure. But but as you point out, it's it's symbolic and that makes it important. But but what would you look at or point to that is a better indicator? And then what conclusion I guess would you draw from that? Well, I don't actually know what conclusion is to be drawn other than like we're still not in anything approaching equity for anyone, really. But, I mean, if you look at the material conditions, even just taking from, like, census data, Department of Education, Department of Corrections, Department of all these different, like, government agencies which measure the things that people do, broken up by demographics, broken up by race, broken up by class, broken up by education levels, all these things. I think that we have far further to go in terms of achieving any kind of racial or gender equity than we could ever possibly um, say. Yeah, yeah. If uh, you're just pointing at like, well, you know, Obama got elected and Hillary Clinton didn't. But also, just as an aside, like Hillary Clinton also just congratulated the new fascist prime minister of Italy, saying mm-hmm. whenever a woman is elected, a glass ceiling is broken. Like, great. <laughs> right, right. No, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great point. Really, Elisa. I think it's just like really a... a slippery thing to yeah, say yeah. one one is you know more measurable sure more measurably sure. at least um, i really I, I really love that you called and and i i think it's a really great point uh ali vitali i want to get your reaction to what elise is talking about here yeah look i think it's it's partly why and look we do our politics coverage generally through the lens of politics fully and again this is my way of focusing on the intangibles that i think often impact these candidates Mm. but certainly i would not argue that gender is the only metric that people should be assessing their candidates on there are some people who feel that they want to vote for someone who looks like them and i think that that is I understand that desire and and I would never tell a voter that that's a metric they shouldn't use. But in my experience, most voters are are more discerning than that and and look look further into policy and and into these candidates themselves. And so I I think it's a point well taken from the caller that this isn't the only metric that we should use. Um, And I detail in the book, too, that you know, there are women who are rising to power even here in, in Congress. We often talk about people like Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene on the hyper conservative end of the spectrum who have picked up the mantle of of the former president's lies about the 2020 election um, and other you know racist conspiracy theories that they have parroted over the course of their time in public life. My argument is not just just elect women broadly. And we've actually seen Republican outfits that want to see more gender parity feel the need to draw the line in saying that they will only recruit and endorse candidates who are qualified, which is their metric of saying we don't want conspiracy theorists on the hyper fringe of the fringe of the party. Instead, they want people who abide by traditional conservative values. And so we've seen the party grapple with this as well on the right, at least. Um, But I think it's an interesting point from the caller. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Elisa, I, I really appreciate the call uh, and the, the the really thoughtful comments. Um, let's go next to Yael in Ann Arbor. Yael, welcome to the show. Hi there. Hi. Go ahead. Um, oh, just uh, I wanted to uh, make note of the general discrimination that older women especially go through. 
that uh, we are not considered to be the contact person if we're with a younger person or if we're with a man. Hmm. Nine times out of ten, we are not looked at or asked a question of or assumed that we're the one paying. And on the flip side of that, when I am with a younger person, even if they're the one who's leading, um, it just, it never, it, it, it never uh, varies much from that. And the other um, discriminatory um, times that I have is when I am with a black friend, young or old, and that person who is black is not considered to be the go-to person and it's just, it's so glaringly present in our world. I was slow to realize that I myself have discriminatory senses. We all do. And uh, over the last 10 years, I've been helped into recognizing when I do or, or uh, could use some help mm-hmm. in strengthening my ability to take people, regardless of their appearance, uh, at uh, at the same value. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Al, I, I I really appreciate that observation, and uh, you know, as an African American man, I can absolutely uh, testify to the truth of what you're talking about in terms of the way in which people just kind of instinctively respond. Um, you know, in, in a restaurant, in a store, uh, all, all kinds of places. Not just uh, it's not just politics. Uh, Ali Vitali, It also stri- strikes me that we're getting closer here to the, just the intersectionality of all of these things, that, that yeah. it's not one thing, it's a combination of, of factors that, that make up these inequalities. Yeah, but I also think that there's something that's a real silver lining and really heartening in, in what the caller is saying here, which is that it's on all of us to check our biases. Right. And and yes. on all of us to explore why we have the knee jerk reactions that we have sometimes. And that was one of my motivations, frankly, in writing the book, which is that, you know, friends of mine have told me after reading it, you know, once you see it, you can't stop seeing it. And it sounds like that's what the caller is saying. And and I think that that's, you know, something for all of us, like our awareness. But I also think it connects to something that I watched the Democratic Party do writ large after Kamala Harris was elevated as VP. They knew that Biden was going to pick a woman even before he picked Kamala Harris. And so what several prominent operatives and and people in the party did is they all banded together and they formed this coalition called We Have Her Back. And effectively, it was just meant to make sure that there was an apparatus that could push back on sexist and racist narratives Hmm. for whoever the female vice presidential candidate was. And I watched them then as the Veep Stakes was happening. And there were still plenty of sexist storylines in this Veep Stakes, unfortunately, even though it was all going to be women. What we saw as I would do cable news hits next to some of these people is when they were asked to compare, you know, Karen Bass to Kamala Harris, they didn't engage with the premise. Instead, they said, here are the strengths of Karen Bass. Here are the strengths of Kamala Harris. I'm not going to tear one down to elevate the other. And the idea of not pitting women against each other was such a central focus for the Democratic Party during that Veep stakes that, again, it was them asking voters to check their bias, but also being like, we're going to help you check it because we're going to disrupt it in real time and force you to think about the way that you metabolize female women in positions of power. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, again, Yael, really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Let's go next to Terry in Detroit. Terry, what's on your mind? Good morning, Stephen. Two quick points. One, I just want to remind us that there was a female third-party candidate in the race in Michigan in 16 that got 140,000 votes. Um, it's true. And, right. And, I mean, one would have hoped that she would have had the good common sense to drop out of the race, but she didn't. And she knew there was no possibility of winning, but she drew 140,000 votes. I also want to remind us that 90,000 people went to the polls and voted down ballot and didn't vote the top of ticket. So I would say we've got 90,000 people that are clear misogynists that just couldn't vote for a woman, but we had 140,000 that couldn't vote in their best interest. Hmm. Um, The second thing I just want to say is that I think part of, one, I think it's a mistake to call Marjorie Taylor Greene and the Bobart lady uh, conservatives. They're not conservatives. They're just crazy people. And I think that their popularity uh, with the right stems from the fact that they act like men. They regurgitate all the same talking points that extreme uh, um, men on the right regurgitate. They carry guns. They act like men. They don't do anything to promote or support their gender outside of the talking points of the men that are around them. That's a really interesting observation, Terry. I'm glad you called in and made it. Um, What do you make, Allie, of this idea that that – for someone like Lauren Bobert, it it is about, or the appeal of the appeal is about how, and instead of saying she's acting like a man, but how male her behavior is, right? How aggressively, kind of um, stereotypical of of male behavior uh, she's she's doing in the way she talks, the way she talks about other people, and of course in the way that uh, you know she signals uh, things like her love for 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 guns uh, that that is uh, a, a mimicking i guess of male culture of male culture but also specifically of trump yes. right which yes. really is the centerpiece of the republican party right now but i would also argue and there was a really fascinating study that i came across as i was writing the book about why we see the rise of some very specific ideological types of women on the Republican side of things. And it fits the mold of the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Lauren Boberts. But even prior to that, Michelle Bachman um, and Marsha Blackburn, especially when she was in the House, um, these very hyper-conservative women, Sarah Palin included. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I've what the study pointed to was that Republican voters, grassroots voters, they don't want to talk about gender and identity politics. Instead, and anyone who does it, like they really balk at that. And so you're not going to find candidates taking on gender and race in the same way that you see on the Democratic side. It's a big party wide difference. But ideology trumps demographics is the finding of the study in the book. The fact that if you can prove to the base of the conservative side that ideologically you are with them despite any demographic deviation off of the norm of white maleness in politics, that is the key to acceptance there. Um, And so it's partly why we see people with such hyper-conservative policy stances rising within the party's ranks echoed by the fact that to be hyper-conservative right now mostly means to be very Mm pro-Trump. And that is the way that the former president has complicated the entire political ecosystem, but certainly the situation on his side and in his party um, 
being Republican means being pro-Trump right now. And you stepped out of line with that, especially in the halls of Congress where I spend my time, they're probably not coming back next Congress or they've already lost their primaries. So that's a whole other piece of it that deals with, yeah, someone campaigning in a very hyper-masculine fashion and being hyper-masculine in the way that they've governed. But like, you know, Trump himself, politically and otherwise, is a real albatross over the entire system right now that Republicans are actively grappling with. Mm-hmm. Okay, we need to take uh, another really quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue talking with Ali Vitali about her book, Electable. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. Bernadette Noel Redford, Martha in Ortonville, Dan in Southfield. We will get to you next. Uh, if you want to join us, 313-577-1019 is the number here. That's 313-577-1019. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. When will the United States elect a woman president? It's a really appealing and interesting question in 2022 especially after we came so close in 2016 and elected the first female vice president in 2020. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about the possibility, the probability, I think, of the United States eventually electing a woman to the Oval Office. Our guest is Ali Vitali. Uh, she is a Capitol Hill correspondent for NBC News and has written a book called Electable, Why the United States Has Not Elected a Woman President Yet, uh, or why America has not put a woman in the White House yet. Uh, we want to hear from you, of course, during the conversation as well. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can work you into the conversation. Uh, Burnett, Bernadette in Old Redford, you're up next. What's on your Good mind? morning. I want to address political wise, specifically Michelle Obama. She attended Harvard and Princeton at one point. She was her husband's boss. But you know why people loved her? Because she was the black June Cleaver, and all they talk about <laughs> is her arms. What is up with that? <laughs> Do we know what, um, uh, or her shopping at Target? Where does Mitch McConnell shop, and what do his arms look like? <laughs> that's those are great <laughs> questions, Bernadette. I really appreciate the call, uh, Allie. That's it's an interesting dimension of this as well. Someone who's not president, but first lady, and the way that she is cast in a in a kind of limited scope because, of course, of her gender. Yeah, but there's also the idea of what we choose to point out about women who are in the public political space, right? The fact that we're focusing on cosmetic things around Michelle Obama that we don't focus on about Mitch McConnell. But, and I think that that's always been something that's plagued women in politics, but I think it's getting better. Um, And I think that we're talking about it less, which is not to say that it's not important. It's not to say that we still didn't have too many conversations about Hillary Clinton's pantsuits. But it's almost heartening now to see that we're having similar conversations about John Fetterman's wearing of sweatshirts and the fact that he switched into a suit yesterday. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it almost feels like an equalizer. I'd prefer, you know, 
I love fashion. I love clothes. I'd, but I'd also prefer not to talk about it that much at all when it comes to my political candidates because it's not a bearing on them being able to do the job. But nevertheless, this is the space we're in. Yeah. Uh, Ellie, I know we're going to have to let you go soon. But, but before I, I do, I really want to get you to talk about 2024 and I guess maybe even 2028. I, I, I think the, the possibilities are, of course, uh, very different than they were uh, two years ago, and and maybe maybe uh, maybe they're better. Um, maybe the prospects uh, look better. But but I'm really curious as to what you think we're we're headed for. Well, the prospects look better simply because the road is now more traveled for women who That's are trying right. to run in the presidential space. We, instead of just having Hillary Clinton as the touchstone, now have Hillary Clinton and Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, Kirsten Gillibrand, Marianne Williamson, and Tulsi Gabbard, all of them showing different metrics that you can run on, including, and this is even in the past, they build on what we had from Carly Fiorina in 2016, all the way back to Elizabeth Dole in 2000, Carol Mosley Braun in 2004. I mean, there have been women on this path, but sadly, just not enough of them. And so now at least the novelty has worn off. And it's why I feel in part optimistic about what happens next. 2024 is a bit of an odd one still because it's still a process that's governed by two older white men in the fact that Donald Trump is the heir apparent on the Republican side and Joe Biden is the incumbent president who says he's going to run again. Normal political rules apply. That would say that it's their primary to lose. Mm -hmm. Um, that being said, it does sound like we're going to see women run. I mean, Congresswoman Liz Cheney is someone who's clearly toying with the idea, if only to stop Trump from being back in the Oval Office. So we're probably going to get to see her in some kind of aspect like this in 2024. But then there's also so many women in the pipeline. So I'm optimistic about this, not just because, you know, we got new Taylor Swift music and I'm in a great mood today, but also <laughs> the metrics for success are there. And I think actually in your state, there's someone who I watch and will be watching quite closely, which is Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who was in the Veep stakes, someone who Joe Biden was considering as his running mate in 2020. Her national profile has only soared since. She's obviously in a very tight reelection race. And it's one where she's been out front on issues like reproductive access, mm -hmm. leading not just in the state, but within the party. And so she's one of the names that I think we will be talking about, whether it's not in 2024, maybe in 2028. My crystal ball, I discarded that after 2016. But, you know, <laughs> when you think about who's in the pipeline, she's one of the names that I think about. And that's the good news. Yeah. The good news is that it doesn't take me a lot of time to think about who the strong, qualified, viable women could be on the Democratic or Republican side who could run for these offices. That's a change, and it's a positive one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, before we let you go, I want to take one more quick call. Uh, Martha in Ortonville. Martha, go ahead. Yes. Um, this, When it comes to boardrooms, it's been proven that if you have some women on your board of a corporation, your corporation will make more money. And what do the guys on the board, especially at the top, say? over my dead body. <laughs> no, I don't want to make more money by putting women on this board with us. And that's a basic attitude. And until you see women on boards and at the head of boards and at the head of corporations that they are running successfully, there got to be more Mary Barras. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great, great point, Martha. I'm glad you called. Uh, Ali Vitali, I know you're going to have to go, but I want to give you a chance to respond quickly. 
Yes, uh, because this is this is what it is here in the halls of Congress. We're running between <laughs> typical things all the time. That's I'll right. be on MSNBC in a few minutes talking about something very different than this. <laughs> but look, I think that what happens in the public sphere in terms of politics has to be echoed and mimicked in terms of what we see in culture and in business. I think that you're absolutely right. We do need to see more female CEOs. It's been a very slow climb to getting more women in that space and one that I think that corporations definitely need to take a closer look at. But we've also seen culture kind of play catch up here too. We've seen even just in the last few years, the rise of you know girl boss feminism and the idea that it is cool to be powerful and cool to be in charge. That kind of a cultural mindset shift, especially for young women and boys who are seeing the ways that women should leverage power and be expected to leverage power, all of that is critically important to then when we think about the most executive of all executive roles, the presidency, and who should occupy that space. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Ali Vitale, uh, author of Electable, Why America Has Not Put a Woman in the White House Yet. It was really, really great to have you here with us. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much. A great conversation. Yeah. Okay, that is going to do it for us this week. Uh, Come back Monday when we are going to talk with writer Will Bunch about why we are so divided in this country by educational attainment and how we go about changing that. Really interesting conversation about class and class division and the way it is playing out in a really different way in our country. Uh, Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and by Nick Austin. The technical director and engineer here is Matthew Trevethan. And Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Have a great weekend, and we will see you on Monday for more Detroit Today. Also, remember, uh, we are coming up on a really important election in just a few weeks. And over the next several days, you will hear from lots more of the candidates who are vying for the seats that are up. And we'll talk some, at least, about some of the issues. You can also go to WDET.org and look up all of the coverage that we have from the news department here at WDET people doing a lot of work trying to make sure that you are informed when you go to the ballot box on November 8th. So uh, again, WDET.org, you can look up all the conversations that we've had here on Detroit Today, uh, but you can also take a, a real look at uh, at the other coverage that we have here at WDET. Also a reminder that uh, Tuesday, October 25th, is Civility Day at Oakland University, uh, the Civility Project, uh, which is something I share with uh, my friend and nemesis, Nolan Finley. Uh, We're going to put on a whole day of uh, talking about uh, how we're able to respect each other and maybe even get along with each other, despite uh, huge political and cultural divisions that exist in this country. It is free to attend Civility Day. All you got to do is go to the Oakland U website and register. We'll see you again on Monday.